That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. What's up, friends? Good to be back with you. My name is Tim, and welcome to the New Evangelicals Podcast. If this is your first time listening, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. There are so many podcasts out there, and to know that you're listening to ours, it means a lot. On this episode, I brought on Keith and Shayla Gregor. Now, I've talked to Sheila before, and by the way, if I mispronounce uh, their last names, I'm so sorry. I, I'm reading off, off a little script here, and maybe I just butchered the last name. If I did, forgive me, guys. I'm so sorry. I've talked to Sheila before. Um, she's been on the podcast because she wrote a book called The Great Sex Rescue, which a lot of people picked up and really enjoyed, and now Keith wrote a book called The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. So I brought him on along with Sheila to talk about the book, why they wrote it, um, marriage dynamics, and also Keith. Keith's journey, and also Sheila's, of going from a complementarian marriage to an egalitarian uh, model. So we talk about that. Now, one thing I will say, we do talk about pornography at the end of this, and Sheila and Keith are proponents of not using porn in any circumstance. For some people, that might be too uh, conservative. For others, you know, the fact that we're even talking about this might be too liberal. I get that. I'm not asking you to endorse these views or to, or, or to, or to shift your perspective. I'm simply bringing on guests to kind of just expose people to the different ways that people view these issues. As many of you probably know, a couple months ago, I had I had on Justin Oberstay, who he said as a therapist, he recommends healthy porn to couples for their sex lives. And a lot of, a lot of people were out there were like, I don't know how I feel about this. And I agree. For me too, I was like, hmm, I'm not sure how I feel about this. But the, the goal here is just to expose people to the different ways of seeing these kinds of topics. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. That being said, I have massive news, friends. If you've listened to the podcast at all, you know that for the past couple months, we've been trying to fundraise a monthly goal of $6,500 in monthly support to get us to a foundational level where we can just survive. We hit that goal earlier this month. Thank you so much for the monthly support. That covers my time. That covers our overhead. And now we have a foundation that we can start building a real house off of. So thank you to all the supporters out there. Whether you give one time or you give monthly, it means so much. As you know, we do all this work completely paywall-free, meaning there's no Patreon, there's no bonus episodes behind a paywall. You don't get special access to me for $10 a month. We just trust that the, that the community will be generous and that our needs will be taken care of. And because of your generosity, they are. And of course, we are a registered nonprofit. So all uh, donations are tax deductible. If you want to give, you can click on the link in our show notes and set up either a one-time donation or monthly recurring donation. Either way, thank you so much. Hey, I also get it. Inflation's through the roof. Times are tough. I know a lot of you tell me, hey, I really want to give. I just can't right now. I totally understand that. If you could share the podcast, if you can share our content. That is a great way that has no financial <laughs> a cost to it that helps us get um, the word of what we're doing out there. So I would really appreciate that. One last thing I want to add, um, usually I do a little spot for Mad Priest Coffee right now, and I'm going to do one, but I want to say it's shifted a little bit. So before Mad Priest Coffee, which by the way, makes amazing coffee that is hilarious. Like their brand's amazing. For example, I like the Dark Knight of the Soul blend. Isn't that amazing? I mean, what a great name. They also have some great merch like I Kiss Shit Coffee Goodbye. I just love how they play on evangelical culture and also are doing really good things. They're fighting Christian nationalism. They're they're trying to be part of fixing uh, the migrant crisis that, that, that so many in the world face. I love that they use their finances and use their platform to push for healthy and for good things in the world, which is why we're a partner of them. Now, here's what changed. Before, our discount code only worked on a specific part of the website, but now they've expanded it to anything on the website. So if you go to madpriestcoffee.com and in the checkout, type in TNE20, you will get 20% off your order, which is amazing. I highly recommend giving them a shot. Their coffee is delicious. They're a small company in Tennessee. They treat 
their employees well. They focus on social causes. They are committed to making fun of exponential culture, which is great. So go buy their coffee. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Keith and Shayla. Hope you enjoy it. Well, um, Sheila, this is our third time hanging out. You and I have went live with your daughter. Then we did mm-hmm. you. Then you and I did an interview, and now I'm doing another interview with you and your husband Keith. So really, I feel like I'm part of the family. Like I'm, I'm the next. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I, I'm a son at this point, and I have another <laughs> sister. Is how I view it. So it's great to have you on, and Keith, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks. So, um, you know, I want to start here, you know, Sheila, you and I have had an interview. I kind of know your background, but Keith, you are the mystery man to me. So why don't you kind of give, um, give me some of your background. Who are you? And you wrote a book, uh, the good guys guide to great sex. And what, what got you thinking about writing a book like this? The floor is yours. So Sheila and I wrote the book together. Okay. Uh, Sheila, I've been doing uh, marriage ministry and talking about, you know, marriage and sex lives for Christian couples for quite some time. Mm. The way it started was I was just doing my regular job as a general Joe pediatrician. And then uh, Sheila was getting more and more into writing about sex. And then she came to me one day and said, hey, wouldn't you love to get up in front of hundreds and thousands of people and talk about the most intimate details of our lives publicly? And I said, of course, what man wouldn't? Jump at the opportunity to do that. Totally. <laughs> so I started getting involved as well. And we, we've been working together for, you know, years now. And yeah, this is sort of a culmination of all that and trying to put some things into, put some things into words that we've been feeling for a long time and trying to give a different perspective on some of these topics than you've heard in the Christian church that we hope have a bit more of a healthy mindset. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I know that 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 Sheila is well known in a lot of the circles I'm a part of. Really, kind of, um, I guess we could say, deconstructing purity culture, pushing us into better into better, you know, um, pastures and greener pastures here. But Keith, for you, I mean, how did you grow up? Did you grow up in evangelical spaces? Like, was purity culture a thing for you? What is your background with that? So, okay, that's a whole podcast in itself. But <laughs> the, the the Coles Notes version is is that I grew up in a sort of a mainline church. Okay. Then I became an atheist. Okay. Uh, and then I became an evangelical Christian when I was what eighteen or nineteen. Okay. Uh, and uh, so, and then I've got been going through the same kind of deconstructing journey in the last few years as everyone else has been as well too. So. Okay. Yeah. And you are currently a pediatrician. Yep. Yep. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. So you're obviously yeah. educated. That's very cool. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's great. It's a good job. Okay. Great. But he understands yeah. science, which is cool yeah. because. We do studies. Yes. Well, you know, we all know that science has a liberal agenda to brainwash people, so yeah, we really we can't trust that, it. We all know that, yeah, we all know that objective data can be easily twisted. Easily. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, <laughs> whereas yeah. opinions of op- opinions of preachers are infallible. Yeah. <laughs> you, you nailed it. I mean, that is the whole podcast. We can stop recording right now. You summed it up so well. All right. So, 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 I'm trying to get the timeline here. So, Sheila, you're doing your blog, you know, and, and that kind of explodes. You become an author. The book does really well. So, when did you both decide, like, hey, we have to write something like the next step, and we're going to call it the good, you know, the good guys got to great sex? Like, how did that kind of become a thing? Well, okay. So <laughs> I started talking about marriage and sex back in 2008. And in 2012, I wrote the um, the original version of The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. So the new one is coming out in March. The two books are launching together. Okay. I would say that Keith and I have always been egalitarian in our views on marriage. Okay. And I hid that pretty well on the blog for a long time, mm. um, kind of deliberately because I wanted to get enough of a following of mainstream evangelicals without turning them off that I could teach healthy stuff without necessarily, you know, being in your face. (laughs) And that worked really well because I got a really big following. And then um, I was able to start speaking up about things that I thought were harmful starting in about 2017. And then all hell broke loose in 2019 when I actually read Love and Respect. And I told you about that on the last podcast I was on. 
um, because I had never read the Christian marriage books before. And so while I knew that I didn't agree with male hierarchy, I just didn't realize how how really toxic the sex teaching was. Mm. I thought at least they'd be talking about sex, right? Because like orgasms are orgasms, right? Right. but apparently not. So, <laughs> so that's when we, we did the huge survey on, of women, which turned into the great sex rescue. And that book, which I'm most known for is really about um, tearing down the evangelical teachings that have been harmful um, and looking at what's really biblical. And then what we're trying to do with these two books is say, okay, what if we just started off healthy from the beginning? like Mm. what if we didn't say anything really toxic Mm. and we just started off healthy and what would it look like to build healthy sex from the ground up Mm. okay yeah that makes a lot of sense so regarding your marriage right so you said you mentioned that like you were egalitarian but kind of kept it maybe a little more under wraps because you knew your audience which i i understand Mm -hmm. what was it like for you and keith like when you i guess first got married did you kind of decide early on like hey we're gonna have a marriage that's this way or did you have to kind of shift from like you know i grew up in evangelical culture so i was taught that you know my wife needs to submit and i need to lead well etc and i rejected Mm -hmm. that pretty early on in my life like actually i hate that word like submit like it's a a yucky word to me and i'm not going to be a dictator in my house it can't work like that but how about for you two was it kind of like a yes right away on the same page or did you, did you have to kind of grow into it? Well, I, I would say for me yeah. that because I didn't become an evangelical till as much later in life, mm. I came with a natural, you know, sense that egalitarianism made the most sense. Mm. Uh, but I heard constantly this preaching that, you know, you're not a godly man unless you're the leader, this kind of stuff. And so right. I, I must admit that early in our marriage, I bought into a lot of that stuff. Mm. Uh, I was being told constantly that you're kowtowing to feminist culture. You're abandoning the word of God to follow, you know, worldly teachings and that kind of stuff. And and, and it's hard to to fight back. You want to be a good Christian man. Right. And so, you know, I took on more of that kind of a a mindset. Um, And so I would say that, you know, there was a brief period where I was kind of swayed into that sort of viewpoint Mm. and it wreaked havoc. It was terrible, mm. and uh, and we eventually moved out of that. And well, Sheila was never there, but but I moved out of it too because uh, I realized it was doing damage. It was doing tremendous damage. Yeah. Um, and so and so so I I did go there because I was taught that that was the that was the way that good Christians were. Um, mm. And I saw the bad fruit, and thankfully I remembered Jesus saying, you know, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Mm. So if you call something good and you see it bearing bad fruit you know, it's not good. You may think it's what God's saying, but if it's bearing bad fruit, it can't be from God. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And that's the whole point of these studies is that yeah. they're showing not just that people think these teachings are harmful. The study actually looked at people and said, do you, do you have satisfaction in your marriage? And then asked, do you believe these things? Mm-hmm. And then she divided those people up. The people who answered, yes, I believe. What was their marital satisfaction like? And the people who said, no, I don't believe that. What was their marital satisfaction like? Mm-hmm. And she found a big difference. The people who believe these toxic teachings had worse marriages and worse sex lives. Mm-hmm. It's not like she asked people's opinions. Yeah. It's she. It's a scientific study that showed if you believe these things, you will have a worse marriage. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's park there for a second. Let's unpack that. Sheila, I know that last time we spoke, you mentioned that that part of your book, The Great Sex Rescue, was doing um, a study, one of the largest, I think, ever for women. Is this the mm-hmm. same study or is this a different study that, yeah, that, we- that, that you both did? We also did men. So after that, um, oh, we surveyed guys. Okay. And so the survey results are in are in the Good Guys Guide to Great Sex. A lot of them, not everything, but a lot of them are there. There's way too much to put everything in. Um, uh, and so the books, the new books are really based on on both surveys. So we have a more complete picture now. Okay. And so in, in the survey that you did uh, for the women and now for men, one of the, qu- or, or I guess, Part of the survey was finding out if you had a complementarian or egalitarian view of marriage and you lived one of those out, how does your sex life measure up? Are you happy? And what you're saying is that in the study, in the scientific study that you guys did, you found that people who were in uh, complementarian uh, marriages were less happy overall. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah. And it's difficult. It's difficult to measure because the problem, well, okay. Joanna, our statistician would want me to say that it's sometimes it's difficult to pull out what you're actually measuring because religiosity is a protective factor for marriage and sex, but religiosity is also highly um, tied to a lot of complementarian beliefs. And most people who believe complementarianism do not actually act it out. And so it's hard to tease this out. Okay. Um, so, but just as an example, if a woman says that her opinion in marriage does not matter as much as her husband's, which is really the definition of complementarianism, because he's the one who ultimately decides, right. Um, her orgasm rate, I think goes down three times. She's six times more likely to say her husband doesn't make her sexual pleasure a priority. Mm. Um, it's just, it's all sorts of nasty stuff. So, okay. Well, that's interesting because I, you know, I think a lot of people, right? Like for example, we can use my account. We've gotten many DMS over the, over the year, probably close to 10,000. And we've heard these kinds of things, you know, people who grew up in, like you said earlier, Keith, who tried uh, to wear the pants of complementarianism, you know, (laughs) often, often come away saying how much it ruined uh, their marriage or their sex life, or just even their own sense of self-worth. So having you say that, Hey, even in our studies, scientifically, we found similar trends kind of affirms what our, at least our perception has been on, on this end of things. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and here's something else that's sort of interesting. At least I find this totally interesting. Um, <laughs> okay. The majority of people who believe that the husband should make the final decision yeah. do not do that. So the majority of, so, so 78% of people who believe it actually practice um, cooperative decision-making. Okay. As soon as you practice it, as soon as you practice the husband making the final decision, even if he consults with his wife first, divorce rates increase 7.4 times. Mm. And that's very similar to what John Gottman found mm. out of the Gottman Institute, which is one of the largest marriage things too. If, if men don't share power with their wives, so if men make the final decision, your chance of divorce is 81%. So mm. what's happening in most, in, in most churches today in evangelicalism is that the pastor is preaching husbands. You have a unique responsibility. God has given you authority and responsibility and you're responsible for your family. And so you need to make the final decision, but that pastor is not acting that out in his marriage, nor are 78% of his congregants. (laughs) But when he teaches that 20% of his congregants are going to act it out Mm. and it's going to be disastrous. And so what I'm asking pastors to do is to actually preach what most of them practice. Wow. I'm just sitting with that and letting that sink in for a minute because it makes a lot of sense though, because again, like we, there's a reason why people are leaving, you know, these spaces and a lot of them are complementarian. And I can't tell you how many women I've talked to, you know, on Instagram and in DMs and emails saying that, you know, like they grew up evangelical, were told to submit to their husband, turned out their husband was an abuser, you know, and they had to leave the marriage or something like that, you know, some kind of story. And so it just is very fascinating to hear that, that even Statistically speaking, the pastors who preach this ideology, right, um, don't even really practice it because because it wouldn't work for them either if they actually tried it. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that is a. I mean, there you go. There's 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 the intro to my episode right there. I mean, that is just such an interesting thing. So, how does this translate, I guess, to sex then as well? Because right? you you kind of mentioned that women, or, or yeah, w- women in these kinds of relationships are three times as or less likely to actually orgasm in a in a healthy marriage. Is that what you're saying as well? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it really affects sexual satisfaction. Um, but here, can I can I pick up on something Keith said earlier yeah, too? Yeah. Sure. Sure. Okay. So he became a Christian at like eighteen or nineteen. Yeah. Okay. Our son-in-law, one of our sons-in-law, so so the daughter that you interviewed, my co-author on The Great Sex Rescue, her husband, similarly became a Christian at 19. Okay. And (laughs) we didn't study this, but I would love to study this because I think this is a really important um, thing to study. Okay. But my theory, and I think think, um, our our research uh, bears this out partially, is that guys who did not grow up in youth group culture have a much easier time not lusting. I think youth group primes men to lust or have issues with lust or think they have issues with lust. Because what what I have found anecdotally is that men who become Christians or evangelical Christians or whatever you want to call it, 
after, like when they're older, young adults do not have a problem treating women as whole people. But when you grow up in the evangelical church, it's a huge issue. And that's what our men's survey found was a huge issue with this. You've probably heard that before, Tim, like 95% of men struggle with lust and the other 5% struggle with lying. Yes. I definitely heard something like that. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in our men's survey, we we simply asked the question, do you, do you find that you have a personal struggle with lust? A daily struggle, with, a daily lust, struggle with lust. Which is what they say with every man's battle. Book called, you know, oh, I, I read the books. Okay. Wild yeah. at heart somewhere in yeah. this room. You, know, I, I totally yeah. get it. Yes. Yeah. So we asked that question to these 3000 men and 75% um, reported a daily struggle with lust, 75%. which to me, to, to me, that's, that that's already like a massively important finding. Mm. It's like 25% of guys are like, no, no, I'm good. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. you know, that message is not in the church. Mm. Right? And the message in the church would be that, well, something's wrong with those 25% of guys. Right. They're lying, <laughs> they're what, lying or something like that. Yeah. Right. They're lying or something else or, you know, like, like, you know, whatever. Um, but we, we suspected that uh, it's uh, because of the unhealthy way we talk about lust in the church. Because I think that we in the church have confused, you know, normal male sexual attraction to females mm. as lust. Mm. Um, and, and so what we did was we took of the guys who did say, yes, I have a personal struggle with lust. We took them through several vignettes or we asked them, you know, in this situation, what would you do? And mm. so we would present a situation of like a, a waitress who's serving them breakfast with their buddy and she's got a low cut top. And right. like, would you stare at her? Would you picture her later in your mind, you know, all these kind of things, right? Uh, to see like what they actually lust. And we found that like half of the guys who report lusting don't lust in any of the scenarios we gave them. Mm. So they feel, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Shalini. Yeah. And they don't have a struggle with porn and they don't have like a mental Rolodex going through their head, as Shanti Felden says men do of all the women that they've seen and all the porn they've watched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, hmm. so yeah. So these men say I have a personal struggle with lust daily and they don't show any evidence of it at all. So what are they feeling is lust? Mm. You know, and I, I think it's because they think I noticed a pretty woman and I was attracted to, to look at her and, Oh my gosh, I'm such a horrible, sinful person. Right. I think it's you know, what's happening. Right. right. What is like normal biology, right. is suddenly <laughs> yeah. evil and demonic and like must be restrained over the top to a point where I can't, I should, I shouldn't even have a desire to find someone attractive that, you know, yeah. it's like, well, that's just normal. Yeah. And it's like, you can, you actually need to erase the women in your life. Like in every man's battle, they actually tell you if you're going into an office building, make it a practice to turn away from the receptionist. So don't look at the receptionist because chances are she's bending over her desk. Oh my goodness. So it's very important for you to ignore the women that you come in contact with on a daily basis. Mm. Because we bought this lie that mm. the only way you can look at a woman is sexually. Right. So if you if you don't want to look at a woman sexually, don't look at her. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And it's it's terrible. And as I've said so many times, you know, Jesus did not refuse to look at women. Jesus chose to truly see women. Mm. And one of my favorite things Jesus ever said was he turns to the Pharisees where when the woman is putting perfume on his feet and he asks them, do you see this woman? Mm. Mm. You know, that is Jesus' heart. Do you see? this woman and the evangelical church is telling men don't look. Yeah. I mean, I think about, I think we talked about this last time, Sheila, a little bit where, you know, my wife and I both waited to have sex. We were married. We did everything right by purity culture standards, you know? Um, And, you know, we got married, of course, had a lot of sex in the beginnings. That's just what you do. You're married, whatever. And then, you know, I got, we got to get to a point and there was one night where I was like, eh, I'm not really in the mood. I'm like, oh my God, am I broken? Like, am I sexually broken? <laughs> like, honestly, right? Like, that's what I thought. I'm like, wait, I can't, I would rather sleep than have sex with my wife. Like, oh my goodness, my, I, I, something is wrong with me, right? Because I was just kind of conditioned from, I mean, countless sermons and speaking engagements from, from men telling me that like, once you get married, it's a buffet. You just want to have sex all the time. And there's never, there's, there's never a bad time kind of thing. Right. Then I'm, and then all of a sudden you're like, well, maybe I'll go to bed and sit and like, wait, but I've been taught 
that like I should just be a raging hormone monster who wants to have sex with my wife in every single you know um, possible arena of my life at all times. But also, I do want to add to you about what what you said, Sheila, where you know like or I think Keith, maybe you said it where it's like you don't have to always see women sexually, right? And that for me changed big time when my wife was pregnant, right? Like when she was pregnant and she was breastfeeding, all of a sudden breasts to me were much more than just sexual objects. Like, oh my God, they're literally giving, you know, they're giving my child life, right? It was a total shift because I've been so conditioned to see parts of a woman's body as always sexual objects, as opposed to just like normal biological functioning, right? That also also has a whole different um, the reason for existence, which is to give life to children. So that was one of those moments for me in my own life where I was like, right, whatever I was taught about being conditioned to always be in a lustful state, right? I'm always going to be lusting after women really is like holding less and less water the older I get and the more life I experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. I think too, um, I get so many emails from women who are in agony and thrown through a loop and don't know what to do because they get married and they find out they're the ones with the higher sex drive Mm. and they feel broken. And I've, I've heard from so many women, they had to go to counseling (laughs) because he felt he was broken and she felt she was a freak. (laughs) And no, you just simply have a difference in libidos. And the problem is most of our resources talk about Men have a high libido and women have a low libido. And that's why in both books, we we took pains to just to not talk about men and women, but to talk about higher drive and lower drive mm. and recognizing that that can even shift like right. <laughs> over time, <laughs> over the month, like, and, right. you know, and so how do we just resolve these things without always making them gendered? Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Keith, did you want to add anything to that before we move on a little bit? What? Yeah. I just say that, that we, a lot of times in the, the, some parts of the church, yeah. uh, they notice that men and women tend to be a little different. So instead of saying, hey, let's follow godly Christian principles and try and live our lives to the best we can, and therefore I'll be the best man I can be, or I'll be the best woman I can be, depending on that, they say, okay, let's tell you how to be a woman. Let's tell you how to be a man. Mm-hmm. And and you, you know, it, it, and it just causes destruction because what if you're one of the women that has the higher drive and you're one of the men that has the lower drive? Right. You're not abnormal you know, like there's nothing wrong with you. Right. Uh, and so instead of teaching the Christian principle of just what is charity, what is, you know, <laughs> you know, what is loving, what is caring, all that kind of stuff. We start these gender role rigidity and it, it just gets us into more and more trouble. Well, I really love that because I mean, Keith, I don't obviously know you, but you seem a little more reserved personality wise. Right. And and I myself, I, mean, I don't know. I'm more really reserved than Sheila and you. Yeah, oh, gee. Maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm no expert here. I don't want to assume, but just from like getting to, to know you so far, you know, and also, I mean, I grew up again in the, in the system. I read wild at heart. I read all the manly books and you kind of get this impression. Yeah. Like, you know, a man is type a and assertive and like wants to hunt all the time, be outdoors. And while, the, while I, I definitely have personality traits of just being a type A in some ways. I was never outdoorsy. I didn't want to go hunting, you know, and honestly, I'm more emotional. Like I feel things deeply and I cry easily. And so, you know, in the beginning, it was just very much like, like, like you kind of said, like, oh, am I broken? Like, is there something wrong with me? Am I not being the godly man that I'm called to be? Because I don't want to go out and hunt animals all day, you know, in the in, in the outback. Like, that sounds like hell to me. And the <laughs> older I've gotten and the more I've learned just to embrace who I am, you know, all the emotions and everything, the more I feel, um, I guess, comfortable. But it was a big shift, you know, because I was really – I had to fight so much of what I was taught a man is supposed to be. And then anytime I was – Anytime I was an exception to that rule in my own life, I would feel guilty about it or like, oh my gosh, I'm just not measuring up or I'm just not manly enough or I'm too afraid. So I definitely, I think a lot of the audience resonates with, with what you both just said that while sure, maybe there are some, um, you know, um, trajectories in general, there are, there are always, uh, it's much more complicated than that. You know, some women have higher sex drives than their partner and vice versa. And, and so when you talk about higher and lower libidos, that's a better way of addressing the issue then all men just want to have sex more often than all women do, right? It's not that that is not a healthy framework to operate in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just um, look at this from a data driven standpoint <laughs> instead of all of the 
the boxes that we've painted ourselves in. And that that's really what we're trying to do. Mm. I think the other issue with, with um, this typical man yeah. that we often get is that in the church, men are allowed to express anger mm-hmm. and like excitement or whatever, but they're not really allowed to express any other negative emotion. Mm. So you're not allowed to be sad. You're not allowed to feel rejected. You're not allowed to feel scared because that wouldn't be a real man. Right. And so what often happens is that men can sexualize their emotions. Um, And so when you feel rejected, when you feel insecure, when you're scared about the job interview tomorrow, um, when you feel distant, whatever, you want to have sex (laughs) because Mm. that's the only way that you can, that you can resolve these feelings. Um, And so a lot of what's happening is that we have, replaced healthy emotional connection and communication with sex Mm. because sex allows you to feel connected without having to do the work of connection. Mm. Um, And it can become a shortcut. Now sex can help you feel connected. And you know what, if he's got a job interview tomorrow, sex is often a really fun thing to do. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Right. I'm just saying that it can become an unhealthy pattern Mm when we separate sex from our emotional selves. Mm. And that's what we've often done because we've actually separated guys from their emotional selves Mm. in the evangelical church. And it's like, how can we integrate that? And that's why a big part of what we talk about is that sex isn't only physical, it's emotional as well. Mm. And so how can we grow that emotional side Mm. of our sex life so that we really do feel connected inside and outside of the bedroom that makes it better anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. So let's get into the book a little bit. I got the manuscript right here. I was looking over it before we started recording earlier this morning. So my first question is, you know, the book is called The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. Why a book on sex for men? Why not, you know, oh, let's unpack complementarian theology or like maybe like like a, a different title that, that that's a little more wild at hardest, right? For it's just for men in general. Why why the focus on on good sex? Forty seven. Forty-seven. <laughs> we have a forty-seven point orgasm gap. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm following. I'm following. <laughs> like, okay, have you ever been to London, England? Uh just j- just through the airport. Okay, so if you're on the underground or the subway on London, England, yeah, everyone who's ever been there will know this. Um. There's a, a voice that that's always going over the speaker, and the voice is constantly saying, "Mind the gap." Yes, yes. Mind the gap. So, and they mean mind the gap between the platform and the train. Right. And really, <laughs> we need to mind the gap a heck of a lot more mm. when it comes to sex, <laughs> because there's this huge orgasm gap, and that 95 percent of men almost always or always reach orgasm during a sexual encounter, but only about 48 percent of women do in the mm. evangelical church. And uh, that ain't okay. And so, <laughs> I agree. if we want to have, if we if we want to have good sex, and most guys want to rock their wives' worlds, like they yeah. want to have great sex, but we haven't been given the right information on how to get there. Mm-hmm. We've been taught like it's all automatic, and as soon as you get married, you'll figure it out, mm-hmm. and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Well, and also we've been taught things that push push us in the wrong direction because a lot of teaching in the church is that sex is for men. Right. Mm-hmm. And and the job of a woman is to just give it to him when he wants it right. because women don't want it. So just just give it to him because it's your act of wifely submission. You know, mm-hmm. right. that's the mentality we have. And I think even people who believe in the whole submissive wife, like the whole competition thing, even those guys, I think, don't realize that that's a not a good sex life. <laughs> like nobody wants duty sex. No, right? definitely people, do not. People want to have sex that's really great and that's mm-hmm. good for both partners. And so it's kind of like a, this is the felt need, right? Like it doesn't matter what your stripe is in the church. If you're a Christian, you want to have a good sex life. And so that's why we focused on that rather than on top toppling big theological yeah. things. We just, we just want to say, this is what people are recognizing as a need. And here's what we have found from the studies that we've done. And then you can then interpret that how you like <laughs> and go from there. So what about the surveys from the men? Uh, did you find that was just very enlightening uh, as you started writing this book? 
Mm-hmm. Well, one of the big things I found that was really interesting is we, you know, Sheila talked about the 40, 47% or, orgasm gap, right? Yeah. So we, we have a situation where women half the time are being left hanging and we don't seem to have a problem with that. Mm. Can you imagine if you told a guy God's plan for sex is that you regularly get hot and heavy with your wife, but 50% of the time you're going to be left right, hanging right. and that's to be expected. Right. And you can just go about your life. Right. <laughs> Sounds terrible. You know, guys would never tolerate that. Right. Um, but at the same time, we ask questions of guys. Do you feel that you spend enough time on foreplay mm. with your wife? Mm. And then we took, and of the men who reported their wives orgasmed frequently, regularly, we found was it ninety one percent? It was like it was over ninety percent. Over ninety percent of guys said yes. I spent enough time on foreplay. Mm. But the curious statistic is of the guys who also reported their wives didn't orgasm very frequently. It was like over seventy percent still said I spent enough time on foreplay. And so the question you ask in the book is enough time for what? Mm. <laughs> you know because it, you know. But this is the issue. It's because we've internalized this message. I spent enough time because sex is easy. Sex is automatic. And, you know, it should just happen. And I spent some time, so it should be fine. If we had a viewpoint that was more like, you know what? God has made men's diff- bodies different than women's bodies. Women needed something different out of sex than men. Mm. If we really had a mindset of we want this to be a good thing for both people, when she wasn't having pleasure, we would say, of course, I'm not spending enough time on foreplay because she's not getting there. Mm. But somehow we managed to think that we're doing a great job <laughs> as guys, even when our wives are not having a great experience. And this book, we want to challenge people to think more, to like really rock their wives' world issues. So is that one of your main points in the book? Is that is that the, 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 the key to closing that gap is that men need to be better at foreplay sexually? Yes and no. Mm. I think it's really more understanding the sexual response cycle and understanding that men and women, and this is an area where we actually are gendered. We're not even, this isn't about libido. This is just about how physiologically we work Mm. (laughs) with sexual arousal is that women do go through very distinct phases in the sexual response cycle more so than men. Men go through the stages too, but it's kind of like more of the same. Whereas women actually excitement looks different from arousal, which looks different from plateau. Okay. um, Where you lead to orgasm and then resolution and when we understand that, then it's like, oh, okay. So if I go for the clitoris, like when she's not even excited, that's going to feel like a pap smear. Mm. <laughs> but I got I to gotta warm her up. And that doesn't mean she's broken. That doesn't mean she's not as sexual as me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That just means that we need to figure out how her body works. Mm. You know, and for some women doesn't take that long for someone. It takes a lot longer. Some days it takes longer than other days. Like, but the key is to learn how to listen to her body. It's not learning how to do a pre-flight checklist, right? Like right. done the nipple play, done right. the clitoris. Now we're ready to go. Right. Like, <laughs> right. But I checked it all off. I don't understand why it's not working. You know? Yeah. What's I wrong with you? Right, yeah. right, right, right. Okay. Very interesting. How, I mean, again, I'm not sure if you, if you asked this in your survey, but how about when it comes down to like communication, like spousal communication, you know, like I would imagine that a lot of this has to be broken down if if partners aren't able or don't feel safe enough to communicate or don't have the language to communicate or maybe are embarrassed about using certain words, right, to communicate to their spouse what they want. Was that part of your findings as well in the survey? Yeah, huge one. Uh, one of the questions that we asked for both men and women is how comfortable are you at asking for what you want and how comfortable do you think your spouse is? Right. And that was an interesting one for men. In in what impacted whether or not their wife felt comfortable talking to them, um, and you know if a guy uses porn, she's a lot less comfortable talking to him about what she wants. Mm. Um, if they've got bad marital satisfaction, there's a lot of different things that really impede that communication, and that's one of the main things that leads to high sexual satisfaction is being able to communicate. Um, so when we can break down what blocks that communication, that's a really important important deal. Um, and we did find, you know, one of the, I do, I, I, I do want to set the record straight on this one. Cause here's another important finding Okay, 49, I think it's 49.6% or something of evangelical men that we surveyed have a current relationship with porn. Mm-hmm. So they're currently using porn. Now most are using it intermittently or rarely, but they're still using it mm-hmm. currently. Um, so that's, that's almost 50%, not completely 50%, but almost 50%, mm-hmm. but it's not 80%. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I've heard those, you've probably heard those stats too, that like 70% of Christian men use porn. That's, that's just not based in research. And even if you look at other peer-reviewed studies of the general population, even if you're looking at like college-aged men and the general population, you, gen- you tend to not get over like 85% of college-aged men hmm. using porn regularly. So we have um, this mentality in the church <laughs> that is regularizing porn use, and it isn't something that all men use. Mm. Yes, it's half, but it's not 80%. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need to be a lot more careful in how we talk about porn. Because we found porn is extremely destructive. Mm-hmm. And the more porn you use, and the longer you've used it, and the younger you were when you started, the more destructive it is. But it isn't every man. And, uh, and, and I think that when we talk about how like 80% of pastors are using porn, again, we did not find that, um, <laughs> you know, or things like that, then it kind of makes it seem like, well, everybody is. So what can you expect? Hmm. And it's like, no, you can expect that he doesn't use porn and, and you can put your foot down and say, no, we're not doing that. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like this isn't acceptable in our marriage. Hmm. And moreover, one of the things we found in the study is we we looked at um, bad outcomes in marriage and we we linked it to how much porn you use. Mm-hmm. So we, we divided guys into intermittent, rare, uh, weekly and daily use. Mm-hmm. And then we we looked at, you know, bad outcomes in marriage and we found consistently what we call like a dose response effect. Mm-hmm. So if there's a bad if there's a bad effect that it can have on your marriage, the more porn you use, the worse that effect got. So, you know, if you, if you never use porn, your rate of, for instance, erectile dysfunction was way lower than Mm -hmm. a person who used it every day Mm. um, and so on and so forth. And so to me that again, it's a really nice study that shows the damaging effects of porn because we have people outside the church saying, oh, porn is not, it's, it's it's not a big deal. It's fine. You know? And the only reason porn hurts people is because they feel guilty about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's actually not true because everybody in our survey was all Christians who ostensibly believe porn's bad. Mm. The only difference was how much they actually did use it. Mm-hmm. The ones that used it more were hurt more. So that to me so shows that porn is bad. Yeah. But here's another interesting thing is that um, when we, when we looked at the numbers, mm. it's not only porn. That's the problem. It's more what Andrew Bauman, who's a, um, he runs some sex addiction counseling centers, but what he calls the pornified style of relating. So the more it's not just using porn, it's really the more you believe that your wife is obligated to have sex with you and that she should have sex with you to stop you from watching porn. Guys who never watch porn, but believe those things have almost as negative outcomes. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the watching porn. It's how you relate to your wife and how you see sex. And when you have this very pornified style of relating, so my wife exists to serve me and I'm entitled to get served. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a huge issue and that's not okay. Mm -hmm. Right. I think what you're saying is, is that there's pornography out there that that is dehumanizing to women. And when a man takes that and says, Oh, my my wife or partner should act like this. It's actually Mm -hmm. very dehumanizing to that person. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And it creates major problems. Do you think that there is, um, regarding pornography and its use, do you think that, um, there is, how do I ask this question? I guess I'm, just kind, of, I'm kind of curious because I've interviewed some people who who have different perspectives on this um, from different you know vantage points, and I've heard some people make the argument that you know that um, certain types of pornography use can be mutually beneficial in the bedroom as like something to spice things up with. Have you found any mm-hmm. any studies that that point to that being a healthy outcome long term, or 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 not, or is that not really your focus for for this kind of study? We certainly did not find it. Okay. Um, we found that the more porn you used, um it was, it was uniformly bad on every measure. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) So um, we certainly did not find that the other issue that I have, and I have a bigger issue with this than, than anything else, which is porn contributes to sex trafficking. It's the largest driver of sex trafficking in the world. And even so-called consensual porn, there's been so much information coming out that it isn't actually consensual. Mm. And the majority of women who are on some of these consensual porn sites were sexually abused as children. Mm. And, you know, (laughs) 
it's probably a trauma response. And are you really going to masturbate to someone's trauma response? Right. Like we, we need, there's, there's a major ethical issue here that goes even beyond marital and sexual satisfaction and mm. goes into major justice issues. Mm. That for me is, is even the bigger issue. <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. That's helpful. Um, so I'm looking through some of like the bullet points of the book and some of the chapters. One of them says when sex seems ugly, I'm mm-hmm. curious, what does that mean? Break that down for us. Um, so again, for a lot of, of women, sex has become really ugly because of porn use or the obligation sex message, or um, I need to have sex so that it doesn't watch porn. Like, do ministers and pastors even know how gross that is? Mm. Like, <laughs> when you're preaching from the front, ladies, you need to understand how much he's tempted to lust after everything that moves. And you need to understand how he he just goes out in public and all he sees is breasts and boobs. And, and if you don't give him something, he's going to lust or have an affair. Like, do we, is that supposed to turn her on? Right. Right. Man, that's the mojo for you, you know? <laughs> like, is that supposed to make her go, oh, wow, I really want to jump him now? Right. Like, <laughs> you know? So instead of sex being a mutually, you know, beneficial, pleasurable experience that we're both supposed to enjoy with each other, it becomes this like scary, horrible thing that you're doing to prevent your lust monster from exploding. <laughs> Um, Your lust monster, it's hilarious. (laughs) Yes, yes, And and that is a hideous view of sex. We've made sex into something ugly. Um, And and so, and women are naturally repulsed from that. Hmm. And and marriages which have that sort of mentality of sex, the guy thinks he's getting a good deal, but he's not. He's getting a shallow shell of what sex is actually supposed Mm -hmm. to be. And he's missing out himself as well, as well as probably traumatizing his poor wife. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why that's what that chapter is about is let's, let's, let's reclaim sex to be the beautiful thing it's supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I gotta be honest with you and with the audience. I mean, my, my wife and I have a really good sex life. We, we communicate really well. Like we kind of are the exception to this rule. Uh, we, we never, even coming out of purity culture, we never had these moments of like, um, her not being satisfied or vice versa. We, we always connect on that way. So I'm grateful for that. So, but be, because of that, it is hard for me to imagine asking my wife to have sex with me so that way I don't lust. Like, I'm like, I'm like, how unmotivating must that be for her? I mean, if, if, if I get a hint that she's, that, that she's not in the mood, but she'll still have sex. I'm like, no, 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 I'm totally good. Like, it's totally fine. We can wait. Like, you know, there's no pressure here. But as I've been, again, reading DMs and listening to women, it seems like there are a lot of men out there who are like, great, like, I'll, I'll take whatever I can get. And, and that, that self-centered focus for me, honestly is unfathomable, but apparently it's very widespread coming from evangelical culture, which really blows my mind. Yeah. It's like evangelicalism sees sex in the same way that porn does. Mm. There's no difference really Mm. because sex is, is about the husband's physical release. Emerson Eggert actually said that in love and respect that, you know, sex is about his physical release. Um, And she exists in order to serve him. And even what excites her is his excitement. Right. Right. It's not, it's not anything for her. It's what it's doing for him. Right. And so for instance, like in Gary Thomas's recent book, married sex, Mm. um, which was only published in October. So a lot of people say, Oh, you're beating up on all these older books. Well, here's one from October. So not that old. (laughs) Right. Um, He describes why a husband would enjoy his wife giving him a hand job when she's postpartum and can't have sex. And part of what he likes about it is how excited it makes her. So her wetness, the wetness that he feels on his thigh. I mean, I'm sorry, but if she's postpartum, that ain't her lubrication. No, that's like, blood, but whatever. That, yeah, anyway. right. That's definitely blood. Right. Right. <laughs> so that's the true. Wet, <laughs> the wetness on his thigh, um, the fact that her breathing is getting heavier, her moans, her growing excitement. Like he's describing a woman getting aroused, giving a hand job postpartum. And let me say. If you are a woman who gets aroused giving a handjob postpartum, and there are some, like, more power to you. That is awesome. A lot of women, hormones after giving birth, you just want to connect. You feel amazingly close. That's great. That is not, however, what the majority of women feel. And the fact that so many Christian resources tell women that postpartum, they need to make sure 
that they're still making sure that their husband ejaculates the same number of times per week, like intended for pleasure actually says that. And then married sex adds this extra thing where she's supposed to get aroused doing it. Right. That is a pornographic view of sex. Right. Right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You know why? Because for many women and hopefully for men, it's a freaking fantasy. I mean, it's ridiculous. Honestly, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, my, my wife gave birth two years ago. We're due in March. Like, you know, I I was not in the mood after she gave birth because I saw what she went through and neither was she. I'm just saying, like, it does it does blow my mind sometimes to be like, wait, this isn't like a Christian book. You know, like a woman who just birthed a child should should be excited to give her husband a hand job like a week and a half after she gave birth. I'm sorry. That is just ridiculous but you know i think again like you said you're finding in your data in, in your data in your survey a lot of men have kind of swallowed that as like yes this is just how it should go one of my questions about about the survey and i'm not sure how you can even measure this but maybe more of this maybe i'm asking for more of your intuition here did you find that 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 that, that the men who are in these relationships where the, where the orgasm gap is so large were like intentionally trying to have this large gap or, or, or they were just super self-centered and just, and didn't care about their, you know, their, their partner, or was it more ignorance? Like, I just didn't know. I thought that we were on the same page. Turns out we're not. And any thoughts on that? I think a lot of it honestly is ignorance. Hmm. And that's why I'm hoping the book helps. Um, I believe the number is 29% of men do believe the obligation sex message. So mm. do believe this entitlement mindset right. that my wife owes me sex, but it's, it's 29%. It's not like 89%. Right. So that's, right. that's good. Right. That's good. Right. Um, and, but you know, again, 71% of guys thought they did enough foreplay, even when she's not reaching orgasm. Right. And um, so you need to wonder like, I don't know that that's malice. I think in a lot of cases it is ignorance. And also a lot of the reasons sometimes that she's not reaching orgasm isn't necessarily to do with him. Mm. Um, like that's some things that we found in the great sex rescue. It's some of the messages that she's internalized. Like I talked to so many guys who say, I would love to give my wife pleasure, but she will not let me. She just keeps saying, no, it's okay. You know, go ahead. Right. And, and right. she won't let me take the time. Right. Um, and so, so many women have internalized a lot of shame mm. um, and a lot of these bad messages that even if he wants to, she won't. Um, and so we have some challenges to guys in, in the good guys guide to great sex of how to overcome that as well. Mm. Mm. And, and one of the other things too, is that guys often just assume things that maybe, you know, are, are not necessarily true. So for instance, you know, guys, we hear all the time, guys saying, what do you mean obligation sex? I don't think she's obliged to have sex. I mean, if she doesn't want it, I don't want it. Right. That's what most guys would say, but most guys don't realize that what the women are talking about in their ladies Bible studies is these books, which say, you know, if your husband doesn't, He's going to watch porn. Mm. You know, th there's this book about, you know, this woman who realized she contributed to the affair because she wasn't having sex enough. Right. Like this is what the women are talking about. And so we as men don't realize that they feel incredible pressure to perform. Right. And, and the, the book points that out. The book says, you know, it's really important for us as husbands to not just not pressure our wives, but to let our wives know that, you know, we want their yes. We don't want them to just not say no. Right. Right. <laughs> and so right. we need to make sure our wives 100% realize that they have the right and our support to say no at any point. Like even if we're in the middle of things, they just change their mind. You know what? That's okay, sweetheart. Things have changed. I'm okay with that. Right. We need to be really, really reinforcing that with our wives. Mm -hmm. So then, because that's the building block of trust that you can then build a good sex life upon. Mm. Mm -hmm. So what are what, what's some of your advice for maybe um, people or, or partners out there who maybe are really like in the thick of this, right? Maybe um, 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 their wife has internalized some of these harmful messages and maybe he has just been taught that, you know, I, it's on demand whenever I need it because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to look at porn. You know, how do, but how do people start kind of coming out of this? Like, like what, what, what are some red flags Maybe people should look out for uh, in 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 this part of the relationship to be like, hey, maybe I'm maybe this isn't as consensual or as loving as as maybe I thought it was. Mm -hmm. Well, if she is never reaching orgasm, that's a big one, or rarely reaching orgasm. Yeah, then you need to realize she doesn't feel like she can say no. Yeah, that's good. Okay, and and for a lot of couples, the best thing you can do is go back to square one, and maybe take sex off the table for a while. Like, okay. 
why is it that we are so afraid of teenagers making out? Mm. You know, it's not because we're afraid of kissing. It's because we know if teenagers are lying down on a bed for a couple of hours making out, they're going to get seriously hot and bothered. Right. And then something else is going to happen. But the reason that they're that they're kissing for that long is because they're not actually planning necessarily on doing the sex stuff. Right. They're just planning on doing the kissing stuff. And because that's all they're planning on doing, they do it for ages and then they get really turned on and then the sex can happen. Right. <laughs> right? right. Now, that's a bigger conversation to have another time. But I'm just saying what we've maybe if we take sex off the table, we'll get back to some of that. Let's just figure out how arousal works. Mm. Let's just figure out how your body works without the pressure to do anything else Mm. and understanding that you can always say no. And a lot of people need to go back to the beginning. Um, The last chapter in the appendix in both the good, the new good girls guide and the new and the good guys guide is, is the honeymoon. Here's a stat that wasn't in the great sex rescue that, um, I found fascinating when we finally ran it. But if you take a couple where they've only ever had sex with each other and we controlled for abuse. Okay. So no abuse in anyone's past. They've only ever had sex with each other. If they wait for the wedding to have sex, she is 25% more likely to experience vaginismus or primary sexual pain Mm. than if they have sex before the wedding. Mm. Now, I'm not going to argue Uh-oh. that you should have sex before the wedding. There's the I'm not going to open that can of okay. Fair enough. But here's what we do argue is that the problem is if you have sex on the wedding night, you just had the most stressful day of your life. You didn't sleep the night before. This is the longest day of your life. And you feel super obligated. Yeah. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Mm. And so instead, let's do a threefold approach. We're going to focus first on feeling comfortable with each other. Right. <laughs> you know. Then we're going to work on arousal and maybe even her orgasm in some other way. And then we're going to work on intercourse Mm. in that order. Mm. And often what couples do is they reverse it. They do the intercourse thing first. Right. And it's terrible. (laughs) Right. And for some couples, comfort, arousal, intercourse can all happen on the same night. But for some, it's going to take days, weeks, whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. Do it right from the beginning, though, mm. and you you set yourself up on such a better trajectory. Yeah. And sometimes if you've been married for 12 years and it's never been good, you got to go backwards mm. and work on that comfort and arousal first. Mm. That's helpful. So um, you have two books coming out. They're launching together, right? Mm-hmm. So it's The mm-hmm. Good Guys, Guide to Great Sex. And what's the second book called? The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. So I rewrote it. Okay, yes. right. So what are some of the... Um, I guess like differences between the two books, you know, they're obviously two books launching on the same day. They seem on the surface mm-hmm. to be aimed for men and for women. Right. So like, mm-hmm. how are they different? How do they overlap? They cover a lot of, they cover the same material yeah. in the sense of like how sex works, the sexual response cycle, the physical, emotional, spiritual aspects. Okay. But we just found that the messages that each gender needed was very different. Okay. Um, cause women needed to overcome a lot of shame, a lot of obligation. Women just needed to feel like, Hey ladies, your pleasure actually matters. And it's okay to want to have an orgasm. Mm. <laughs> right. And, and guys needed to be told, Hey guys, if you want sex to be great, it needs to be about your wife mm. first. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. mm-hmm. okay. and, and the books, uh, the books actually have study questions at the end. So you, you can't sort of study the book together through the whole thing, because we do things in different orders because we're trying to deal with slightly different issues with women and with men. Sure. Um, but at the end, there's a set of study questions, which are the same. And what you do is you can read the whole book together. And then at the end, you can go through the questions together and talk about your, mm-hmm. your own relationship and, and how that's working and, you know, what you saw and did it affect you and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I like to sum it up. Women need a raw, raw message. Like ladies, this can be awesome, you know, and men need a, okay, guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Slow it down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Take Interesting. Focus a little bit. That's exciting. So when do the books come out? March 15th. Okay. So by the time this comes out, the, um, um, the books will be out, which is great. I'm assuming wherever mm-hmm. books are sold, which is, uh, yeah. are they coming out on audiobook as well? 
Yes. Oh, and we yeah. read them. So yeah. it's our you voices. did. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I love audiobooks, yeah. man. I really do, especially because I drive a lot. So whenever I have the chance, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll play it. So that's exciting. So you know, I'm looking forward to, to um, you know, obviously what we'll do is we'll put the, the um, book links in show notes for you so you have access to it. And um, we're excited to, to have them come out. So I'm looking forward to it. I know it's been a – well, for you, Sheila, it's been a while because you rewrote the entire book, right? So yes. it's been a long time yes. coming, which is – I'm sure you're very excited to have it come out. Yes, I am. Something that I can finally um, promote again, which is great. So Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, listen, Keith and Sheila, it's been great having you on. Um, any last thoughts, any final words you want to throw out there to the audience? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> I just think we've been talking about this wrong for so long, yeah. and it's embarrassing. <laughs> like it's embarrassed. I'm embarrassed of the church. Mm. So come on, let's get our act together. Yeah. This is an awesome thing and we can do it right. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people are reading like the great sex rescue and going, Oh yeah, that's what it should have been teaching all the time. Right. And we just hope that these books will be like that. We don't think these books are going to be like something that people are going to read and go, what, where are they coming from? Mm. They're going to read this and go, Oh my gosh. Yes. Mm. That's the way sex is supposed to work in a, in a Christian marriage. Mm. And it's going to make a lot of sense and it's going to make people feel normal who should feel normal. <laughs> and, uh, and it's going to bring a lot of hope. We, we, we hope it will. Awesome. Well, thank you, Keith and Sheila for making time. I'm sure we'll do it again. Thanks Tim. <laughs>